the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. Hope you had a nice Father's Day. Uh, When we left off last week, uh, we are talking about continuing this series of this book called Homecoming, which I wrote and got published a year ago, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And um, when we left off last week, we were talking about how the concept of the new covenant being written in our hearts and placed on our minds by the Holy Spirit in order to bring us to our Divine Father, uh, so that's the Holy Spirit writing Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the New Covenant, uh, so we can truly say, by the Spirit and through the Son, we get, or we return back to the Father. And um, we talked last week about um, a Gentile misconception and a bad translation uh, or a questionable translation if, at, the, at the best of uh, John chapter 14 when it talks about in my father's house, this is what Jesus is saying to his apostles the night before he died, there are many um, mansions. And we discussed that that probably was not the best uh, translation in the context, in the context of what Jesus was talking about. Because what he's talking about for the next four chapters, I mean, all through the next four chapters, John 14 and John 15 and John 16 and John 17, it's all about the Son as Messiah, as Jesus, as Yeshua, known that's his Jewish name, uh, lives in the Father, and the Father lives in the Son. And he's trying to explain to his apostles by the way, you're part of this, this indwelling, this living in, not just being with, but living in. So we went into that pretty extensively the last two weeks. I don't want to uh, go over that right now, uh, but enough to say we did talk about um, the fact that there was a Gentile sacred cow, if you will, that we, unfortunately, because of a probably less than accurate translation, basically took the words dwelling place or living space and turned it into an impression of a large imposing residence of a mansion because that's not what Jesus was talking about, going to heaven and and having you um, be brought up to heaven to live in a mansion. This is a Jewish story. It's a relational story. It's a transformational story. It's not a relocational story from one place to another place. It talks about getting to know family members that we have been separated from through sin and through rebellion, going all the way back to the original Adamic curse in Genesis chapter 3. And so the Messiah was sent to bring us or redeem us, if you will, back to 
what we lost in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, which was our relationship with our divine Father, which just happens to be the definition of eternal life in John 17, 3. Knowing him is eternal life, and the Son whom he sent is eternal life. And so when you use that term mansion, when Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father, and in my Father's dwelling place, in my Father's house are many mansions, um, people you know, unfortunately distorted that into a Gentile context instead of a Hebrew or a Jewish context. And it really, really plays into the whole Gnostic gospel of um, everything about the material creation is evil and only the spiritual world is good and only going to a spiritual place is is the point where um, perfection takes place. But that's all Greek thinking. That's all linear thinking. That's all Western thinking, and and we've talked about the fact that the Bible is a Middle Eastern product of a Hebrew culture, and uh, a Holy Bible, the vast majority of authors who, who happen to be Hebrews, with maybe one exception, Luke. So I want to uh, read to you the intro to the chapter 8 section of called Gentile Sacred Cows, in the context of, of why do we have to deal as Gentiles with sacred cows? Well, I, I wrote a chapter 9, and I said there's another group that has to deal with their sacred cows as well. It's not just us Gentiles. The Jews have their uh, sacred cows. And the point of bringing all that up is that in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about this concept of one new man in Christ, where both Jew and Gentile come together. And the wall of enmity that separates them, which is the law of, of religious practices of enmity, separates them. It's not talking about the internal moral law of God. It's talking about Jewish rituals and Jewish observances and Jewish um, particularities um, a lot of times, which unfortunately, the Torah is a good thing. That's what Paul said. In fact, he went on to say, hey, look, the Torah is not only good, it served as a tutor to bring me to Christ, to bring me to Yeshua, the Messiah. And so I don't want to go off into the law part right now today. That's for another topic, probably in the near, very near future. Um, but today I want to talk about the Gentile sacred cow um, that needs to be looked at because it's interfering with the kingdom purpose of what God wants to do through this mystery of what's called one new man in Christ. And I hope you guys did your homework because last week I asked you guys to check out Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. And then I added a second book Paul wrote. I said, please look also at Galatians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3. It's easy to remember because Ephesians and Galatians, same chapter numbers, okay, 2 and 3. And the topic there is how Jew and Gentile come together in the the end times to basically do a kingdom reconnecting where the emphasis is is on what joins us together as fellow members of the same family, fulfilling all of the promises and the terms of the covenant between God and the Jewish patriarchs, namely Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because there's lots of references to Gentiles in those Jewish covenants. And the references to Gentiles talks with about the fact that these contracts, they are co- they're covenants or contracts. They're an agreement uh, between God and certain individuals in this case. Um, but the point of the contract is to have a prototype type of people who will serve as an example of what having a very personal and deep relationship with God looks like. 
and all of the benefits that can flow from that relationship of covenant between God and his people. And as that serves as an example, that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, everything that happened to the Jews, these are the first 13, check out the first 13 uh, verses of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, talks about all the mistakes they made. They did some good things also, but, but unfortunately more mistakes than good things as far as obeying God and having a relationship with him. Um, those were, Paul says that very clearly. He says that those experiences, successes, and especially failures, we're to, we as Gentiles are to learn from. Paul's writing this letter to a Gentile church, the church of Corinth. And isn't it interesting that he's using a Jewish sample to say this is what you do and this is what you don't do if you want to make this fulfillment of these covenants applicable to us so that we learn how to have a relationship with God, okay? So if you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, Paul calls this movement of coming together of these two groups, he labels it a mystery, and it's a mystery because the Father God has not revealed every element of how this is supposed to roll out. What's this supposed to look like? It's really radically different from what the we Gentiles have been doing for, for religion for the last 2,000 years because we thought erroneously, wrongly, that God was done with the Hebrew people after the diaspora, after the Second Temple was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. And the assumption after the gospel went out to the Greek-Roman world was that over time, it took a couple of hundred, maybe even three or four hundred years, where slowly we started disconnecting from our Hebrew roots, our Hebrew foundation our Hebrew connection, biggest mistake we ever made. And it allowed Gnosticism to creep in, uh, which is the exact opposite of the Hebrew gospel. Um, It allowed linear thinking to come in, uh, Greek philosophical perspective to come in, and it distorted completely the first two-thirds of the Bible. And when we hand out Holy Bibles, it doesn't make any sense for us to say, this is the most wonderful, powerful book. Um, just don't read the first two-thirds. You really don't have to bother with that. Well, again, what we talked about last week was it's like buying a house um, and you only buy the roof. In order to dwell in a house, which God wants to do in us, this is what we talked about last week, and we in him, um, you don't you don't buy part of a house and say, this is a house that I can dwell in. It's a roof, and it's only a roof if you leave out the first two-thirds of the book. So we have to be inclusive and realize there's actually a reference in Ephesians chapter 2 which talks about God building a building. He's actually talking about a construction project, and and so you're thinking, well, what's he building? And so let me just open up here real quick to Ephesians chapter 2, and we will locate that place where he's talking about, okay, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's writing that God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and even though we were dead in our trespasses, our violations of the law, he made us alive together with Christ, and he says, by grace we have been saved. And raised us up together to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, wow, that's that's already happened with our spirit, but we still have our soul and our body down here. That in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so going on down, he wants the he wants the Gentiles to realize that when they come they get when they get born again. They get saved at Passover. And they get born again at first fruits. There's something that 
they have to understand, and this is what he points out, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called circumcision made in the flesh of, by hands, that you at that time were without Christ and you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers from the covenants of promise. In other words, you didn't understand him and you weren't connected to him because you didn't understand him. Nobody explained it. You were part of the covenant. And I'll just go back here and briefly say, if you look at uh, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and all of the um, repetitions of the terms of the covenant, it talks about Abraham being a father of many nations, plural. Well, if a Jew calls you a goy, that's the singular, or a goyim, if you're plural, that just means people of the nations. That's all, that's all that means. But that covenant was about you, ultimately, because we were to be blessed as we learned how to have a relationship with God through the Jewish experience, through the Hebrew experience. That's why we read the Jewish Testament. We can learn from what they did well, and we can learn from their mistakes. And so he goes on to say in uh, Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ, Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now listen, who has made both one. What does that mean, both? Well, it's talking about both groups of people, both Jew and Gentile. And he, again, I'm going to insert he because this is the context, he, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation. There's been a wall of separation between the two groups. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, why is that so important? It's the next verse, Ephesians 2.16. Here's the why. Here's the because. Here's the reason. And that he might reconcile them both, talking about both groups, Jew and Gentile. Listen, to God. You see this whole point? We lost God in the garden, Father God in Genesis 3. And he's bringing both groups back to God through him. Okay, now I'm back in 2.16. To reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity that, and I'm going to fill in, that was existing in the past. That's kept them separated. Now, you, we've got to really focus on that. That's why this um, one new man um, coming together is critical because Jesus is saying, through what I did on the cross, I'm bringing you both back, listen, to a mutual, to a mutual father. You both come from the same Av. Av is the Hebrew word for father. If you say Avinu in Hebrew, it means our father. And it's pretty clear that, I think we talked about this last week, we talked in John 14, 6. Yeshua, his Jewish name, Jesus, his Hebrew name, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. In that declaration, he declares what the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk experience is all about. The goal is getting redeemed back or reconciled back to our mutual Father, okay? Look at verse 17, and I'm going to fill in. He says, he came, so it's talking about Messiah Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, and for through him, this is verse 218, notice the three prepositions here. Small words, but big in, big intent. For through him, referring to Jesus, we both, the word both, both groups, Gentile and Jew, have access. Here's the next preposition. The first one was through him, talking about Jesus. The next preposition in Ephesians 2.18 is the word by. By one spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, as they call him in in Hebrew is the Ruach HaKodesh, okay? 
the Holy Spirit, by one Spirit. Okay, here's the third paragraph. Okay, through him, that's Jesus, and by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. What's the point? We're we're both groups coming back to the Father. To is the third preposition in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. So through him and by one Spirit, we're coming back to the Father. That's the point of bringing the two groups together. And to stop with this Gnostic gospel, which says, oh, it's all about dying and going to a place. No, it isn't. That's not why Jesus came. We just explained why he came. In using this verse in 2.18, to reunite both of the groups of errant children, both Jewish errant children and Gentile errant children, back to the Father. And so check out the process of building here. In in 2.19, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, and he's talking to Gentiles now, but a fellow citizens. Now isn't that interesting? Citizens is, is is a part of an a larger group, your fellow citizens with the saints and, and, and members of the household of God. So there are two things there in Ephesians 2.19. Gentiles are no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, but we are now part of what is called the commonwealth of Israel. And he uses those terms. Commonwealth a lot of times, you know, after the British Empire broke up after World War II, you'll see, that, for example, the, the Canadians uh, always called themselves uh, as part of the Commonwealth of the British Empire. Okay? So that is the concept there is a political one, that you belong to a nation. You belong to a separate nation. But, but then check out the smaller, the micro part of this. You're fellow citizens with the saints, but you're also members, Ephesians 2.19, of the household of God. Now you're part of a family. Well, that's a smaller group that Gentiles have now become part of. And it goes on to say in Ephesians 2.20, now here's where the construction is. Check out the building. God's building something here, very special. He's constructing something. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Dare I say that you cannot really have something in which to dwell, like an indwelling of a place, a residence, a domicile, a house, if you don't have a foundation. Just drive by your local uh, residential development. The first people that are on the job site with the dirt, with the parcel of land, are those who are going to build the foundation. Well, here Paul in Ephesians 2.20 is saying, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, the prophets in the Jewish Testament were all Jewish. They were all Hebrew. They were talking about this Messiah who was coming and who was going to do something very special. Isaiah was one of those prophets. Check out Isaiah chapter 9. It talks about the Prince of Peace who's showing up with the government better known as the kingdom of God, the government on his shoulders. He's bringing God's government back to what we lost, which is our inheritance of the material creation. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So, having been built on the, on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself, himself being the chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the foundation. Now, go on to 21, verse 21. In whom the whole building is being fitted together and it grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Can you see what's happening here? Remember what we talked about last week, Isaiah chapter 66, where Father God declares, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, but where is the house you will build for me or the dwelling place? He didn't say mansion. He said he was going to look into, he answers his own question by saying, this is the place of my rest. And in verse 2 of Isaiah 66, um, he says, to this one will I look. All of a sudden, your pictures are turning to a person. 
This person who is humble and who is contrite and trembles at my word. I'll finish up with this before the break. Ephesians 2.22. We are being constructed into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you are being built together. That means the both groups, Jew and Gentile together, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's why this one new man concept of Jew and Gentile coming together, it is a construction project for the dwelling place of the entire aspect of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Put on your seatbelts. We'll see you on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. So we're going to pick it up where we left off. I'm going to read to you the uh, kind of the introduction of this chapter 8 in the book of Homecoming, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And basically the intro starts off as this in chapter 8. It's called Gentile Sacred Cows. Um, and there are, I think, seven, you know, seven of them that we're going to talk about. We talked about one of the sacred cows that needed to be uh, slain was uh, last week was the uh, concept that mansions in heaven. And go back and listen to last week's show. Um, don't have time to repeat it here, but uh, we really need to shift our thinking on this because if we think like Gentiles trying to understand what's written by Jews, we will never understand the context of what's being said. Okay? So, to kick off this chapter, Jewish, or I'm sorry, uh, Gentile sacred cows, in order for the mystery of one new man and Messiah Jesus to move from a theory to reality, both sides of God's cultural and ethnic spectrum, which means the Jews or the Hebrews and the Goyim, which are the Gentile members of the nations. There's only two groups of people that are talked about in the Bible. That's it. We just mentioned them. There are the Jews, people of the covenant, of the promise, of, and the goyim, the people who are of the nations for whom those covenant promises are going to benefit and bless. Okay, so we have to take stock on how Father God, Adonai, may be bringing us into the fullness of his unfolding blueprint, which, by the way, was caused, called a mystery. So picture yourself with a blueprint on a table. And somebody's going to say, hey, here's this uh, thing that I think is being built by God. This is pretty amazing. This is what we just read you know, in the last, uh, last half hour from Ephesians chapter 2. And you picture somebody like the contractor, the general contractor, opening up a blueprint in front of you. But it's in a scroll. Because if you go to a, a construction shack on any place where um, homes are being built, you'll notice that all of the blueprints for the different types of homes that are being built are are rolled up. And so this mystery is like unroy, um, unf- what's the word I want? To unroll, to spread out, to make flat this rolled scroll. And as somebody opens it, you don't see it all at one time. You see bits and pieces of it, but as it gets more and more out into an area that you can examine it because it's being flattened out on the, on the uh, table. Well, then you say, well, I didn't see that before, and I didn't even know this other part of the building was even there. And I think that's why Paul is calling this a mystery. It's something that God reveals with his timing. And we have to understand God is sovereign, and he knows when it's time to release the rest of what's on that blueprint as it gets unrolled. So... As I'm going to read back here in the second paragraph. As new elements of this mystery are revealed to us, we need to be prepared to be taken out of our comfort zone of our limit, earlier limited seen-through-a-glass-darkly perspective. That's what Paul, that's taking Paul's language. He says, you know, we don't understand all of this. We're seen as if through a glass darkly. As humans, we are generally not comfortable with change. Well, I think pretty much everyone can agree with that. Once we form habits, we are creatures of habit. We don't like change generally. But I mentioned, but here we need to acknowledge that we, even though we're truly creatures of habit, God is all about change. 
he is all about change in the sense of moving us from the cursed people of Genesis chapter 3 over to the uncursed people <laughs> after the cross of Christ. And to, and to say that looks very differently. That is not just a different look. It is a different entity. He's changing us, as Paul explained to King Agrippa in Acts 26. He's taking us from the power of Satan to God. Notice he didn't say from the power of Satan to heaven. It's not what Paul said when he was explaining what the message of the kingdom of God, the Jewish message was. Because King Agrippa asked, asked uh, Paul a question. What, how did you become one of those people on the way, which they called the early Christians? And he said, well, you know, he told him about the whole getting knocked off his horse, you know, on the road to Damascus. But the message that this Messiah Jesus gave him was, he says, yes, you take this message to the Gentiles to bring them from darkness to light, first of all, to open their eyes, to bring them from darkness to light, and then, he said, from the power of Satan to God. We need deliverance. We don't need to change locations. We need to be, we need to be delivered from the power of Satan over our lives. And we talked about that in an earlier show. If the Jews had been delivered, which they were from death and after the 10th plague, with the Passover, they killed the unblemished lamb. They spread his blood on their doorposts. They were delivered from death. But the whole idea was, don't stop there. You need to leave and detach yourself from the slavery of the tyranny of Pharaoh over you because you were slaves And you can see the New Testament application to that when you read Romans chapter 6. It says, look, we don't have to be slaves to the power of Satan or the power of sin anymore because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So the whole idea is Jesus didn't come to just take us out from point A to point B. He came to take us out from the control or the power of, of the slave master, who was Satan, exemplified by Pharaoh, and detach ourselves, liberate ourselves, deliver ourselves from the hands of those who hate us. Well, where's that come from? Well, that was Luke chapter 1 at the uh, circumcision of John the Baptist. When Zacharias finally had the curse taken off his tongue, he explained that this Messiah was not going to take us to a place, but he was going to deliver us. From what? From the hands of those who hate us. That's language that the Jews would understand coming out from 430 years of enslavement to the power of the Pharaoh, the tyrant. And God says, these are my children. I want them back to get to know them, and I want to bless them. That's the story of all the seven feasts of the Hebrews, beginning with Passover. But we can't stop there. That was a beginning point. So let's, let's go on here. So both sides of the spectrum, both Jew and Gentile alike, both groups need to be flexible in acknowledging that we bring with us cultural practices and cultural beliefs that at times obstruct God's larger one new man strategy. God's blueprint involves producing unity, and then I have parenthetically, not uniformity. In other words, there's a difference between becoming unified and becoming uniform. But producing a unity of both his Jewish and Gentile children to have access back to him. You know, read 2 Corinthians, I think it is chapter 3 and chapter 6. Look at how many times the word reconciliation shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, especially chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Um, you know what? I'm going to see if I can find that here real quick. Um, it's amazing how many times the word reconciliation shows up. Okay. Now let's start with uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 3. And what agreement has the temple of God, which we are, with idols? For It says, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. Notice in not with, and I will walk amongst them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice 
the indwelling produces a relationship. I w- let me read that again, second part of verse 16 of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6. I will dwell in them and walk amongst them. Okay, the indwelling produces this, and this is that. This is what I'm going to read. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see how important the indwelling, the construction of us as the residence or domicile or temple of God. He wants to live in us because that's the way the relationship gets intensified and much more deep, much more profound much more intimate. And so he says in verse 17, therefore come out from amongst them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And in that process, check this out in the second half of verse uh, 17, and I will receive you. Now look at verse 18. This is why we just celebrated Father's Day. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You see the family concept there? You see how it all comes together with the family concept. And he, that's what he's trying to say. You, in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, what we read in the first half of the show, it says, hey, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're members of the commonwealth of Israel. That's your new citizenship. And, and you're members of the household of God. Wow. You're members of the household of God. Okay. Let's go back and finish this section where God wants to be reconciled to his children. And I I refer you to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. This goal of reconciliation is achieved as we allow Messiah Jesus to make both groups, meaning Jews and Gentiles, into one group by breaking down the middle wall of separation and enmity. Our sacred cows of man-made traditions, of religious traditions, often operate as walls of division separating us from one another, bringing consternation. And I refer you in the book again to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And I do point out that I say, look, as a side note, any recommendations that I'm making in this chapter— the next two chapters that I offer to either group, they're intended as exhortations and encouragements. Um, both Jews and Gentiles are being beckoned to a much higher bar, which means a much deeper relationship personally with God, with God's new covenant being implemented. What We talked about that last week. God's new covenant is Yeshua, Jesus, as the law being replaced in our minds and written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the Father. That brings the Father to us. And that's really the culmination of his divine blueprint. That's what it's all about. And I mentioned that much of what I'm going to be proposing in the following chapters is based on a combined secular and religious experience. Um, I had 16 formal years of Catholic training all the way through grammar school, high school, and even my undergraduate um, degree. But for the last 40, well, it's been almost 47 years now, I have identified as a Protestant. And, it, and although I have a diverse, diverse church background, including both the Catholic world and the Protestant world, um, I have been in a Messianic Jewish congregation for the last, let me see here, what would it be, seven years. And I'm learning about the rest of this thing called the Holy Bible, about its Jewish framework, its Jewish context, because, again, some people get their mind, minds blown when I say, hey, did you know Jesus Christ um, was actually Jewish? He has a Jewish name. And he celebrated the Jewish feasts. And he talks about him being the fulfillment of the Jewish law and the Jewish prophets. And after a while, you're getting the sensation of saying, well, you know, maybe reading the Bible with only a Greek or a Roman lens, a Western lens, isn't really a good idea because it really loses 
the meaning of words and the intent of messaging. So I, I mentioned in the book also I, sell, I served as a jail chaplain for um, you know, 10 years uh, doing jail work, and um, I also taught down in Mexico at the Bible College of the denomination that I'm in. But I'm, all this to say is not to, to uh, make any point other than to say I come from a Gentile world of both Catholicism and the Protestant realm of the Reformation. And I say after three decades, actually going to four decades, of deeply researching our Judeo roots of Christianity, I ended up under the tutelage of a local Messianic Jewish rabbi. And um, I'm allowed to teach in that congregation from time to time. And I think there's an appreciation to saying God is doing something very unique and very special by bringing these two groups together. Um, but I do add on the page, page 160 of the book, I said, I've come to a profound and somewhat upsetting realization that we Gentiles, of whatever denominational persuasion, it doesn't matter, um, have been pretty much tricked or hoodwinked by our Western linear disassociation from our Hebrew circular cyclical foundational roots. I mentioned also that I hope never to lose my willingness to be taught, and I certainly do not wish to appear as though I have all the answers by any stretch. But what I do desire is to continually ask some of the more penetrating questions in an effort to explore God's deeper revelations for this season to which we've been called. And you must admit, this is a unique season in which we find ourselves. I mentioned that since one new man is considered to be a mystery in, in Scripture, that's what Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 3, both, group, group, no, I'm sorry, both groups of God's children need to admit that none of us have this all figured out. As we readily make that admission... God will be able to instruct us and to carry out his plans if we follow as he leads and not the other way around. So I asked the question, what are the Gentile stumbling blocks or obstacles that could act as a hindrance to the formation of this one new man in Messiah Jesus? As you will see, I liken the Jewish and Gentile sacred cows to (laughs) automobile transitions and steering wheels, um, in some cases, I say um, the gearbox needs to just be shifted into a higher gear, but other times I'll say, you know what, the transmission just needs to be jettisoned over the side and start over. So it depends on which group we're talking about. And so um, I want to talk about another Gentile sacred cow that needs to be looked at with a different lens. And I want to talk to you about it's going to page 171, I'm sorry, on the book. The sacred cow is of, in this week is called the perversion of grace. And I explained that the concept of grace is often explained to be unmerited favor. Uh, and, of course, Paul says, oh, we just read it today, and that we are saved by grace. And we just read it in Ephesians chapter 2. But unfair, unmerited favor is described as God's riches at Christ's expense. And um, I say that studies of, of what grace actually is often involve a limited or a partial definition. And I point out, for example, teachings of grace in Gentile environments generally tend, generally, to be limited in scope to forgiveness of sin. Definitions of grace certainly include, no doubt, the concept of forgiveness of sin, we have to start there. Independent from any attempts on our part to try to perform or earn forgiveness or salvation by doing religious works, that cannot be done. But we understand this thoroughly, and we've been taught this, and we can teach others about what God's grace regarding forgiveness of sins actually includes, that we can't earn salvation through dead religious works. Salvation, initial salvation, in other words, Passover, is a free gift from God, and it's free. We can explain that idea to the undelivered world in about less than five minutes. But when we make the leap to assert that the purpose 
of being forgiven, what's the point of being forgiven of sins, is to only limit us to an, an assurance of our going to heaven. We're not only running towards the wrong goal, we're, our, we are seeking the wrong method of reaching that goal. Again, I'm not anti-heaven. I believe in going to heaven is something I want to do after I die, but I don't want to remain there. I want to have my kingdom purpose, which is returning with Jesus to rule and reign as a kingdom of priests and kings, as we see in Revelations 5, as we see in Revelations 20, as we see in Revelations 19. It's all over that we are coming back to get back what was stolen from us, which is the material creation. Mankind was supposed to rule with authority over the earth, not fallen angels. And we have a job to do in retaking our inheritance from God, back from the thief, back from the liar. Jesus called him the father of lies. And all he does is to, what are the three things? Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You see that, you find that in John chapter 10, John 10, 10. Those are the, those are the three things that Satan does. And so if we don't understand that the reason Messiah... Messiah Jesus came was to reunite us to our Father. And if we are reunited to our, our Father as his sons and daughters, what do fathers do? We just celebrated Father's Day. Fathers give inheritances. And didn't Jesus tell us in, in Luke, the book of Luke, it's the Father's good pleasure, listen, to give you the kingdom. Wow. What does that entail? And you read that in, in Romans chapter 8, 15 and 16. It says, hey, if we are God's children, that means, and Paul explains this to the Romans in chapter 8, that we're not just children, we're heirs. H-E-I-R-S. Fathers give inheritances. That means we are to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. Now, go to the next line there in, um, in Romans chapter 8. It says, we're not just heirs. Listen, we are co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs with Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. What was promised him? Well, I think if you look at Psalms chapter 2, the father's having a discussion with his son, and he says, ask of me. He didn't say, and I'll give you heaven. He didn't say that. He said, ask of me, and I will give you the nations. You see how, you see the Jewish flavor there? The nations are mentioned in the covenants with the patriarchs. We're the nations. The people of the nations are us, and we're the prize. In Second Temptation of Christ, when Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the mountain, he doesn't show him heaven as the prize. He shows them, shows him, Jesus, all of the nations, all of the kingdoms of the earth. You see how we have it backwards? We can't, we got to identify these Gentile sacred cows and deal with them. They are throwing us off track to the goal, the kingdom goal, the kingdom of God goal, which is back to the Father, back to the earth, through the Messiah, and by the Holy Spirit. And this is a Jewish experience of returning. They call it Aliyah or Teshuvah, which means to return. But it's also a Gentile experience. We're coming back home. And that's why I called this book Homecoming. So I say, as we as Western Greek thinkers, on page 172, we worship the process of human reasoning as an idol. We attempt to figure out a Jewish God and create formulas, Greek formulas for how to gain God and at the same time be able to keep our old nature alive. See, if we, can, if we can have God and then just fly out of here and write off the earth as a lost cause and write off the nations as a lost cause and just get to the sweet by and by, nothing changes with our fallen nature as a result of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. We don't change. 
We want to talk about change of location, but we don't want to talk about change of us. And that, in essence, is the problem that God still has on his hands, which is our rebellious nature that we don't want to submit to. And this is why we're going to talk about this Gentile sacred cow, of which I call the perversion of a wonderful gift from God, which is called grace. So when we're talking about the old, keeping the old nature alive, I said, you know, if, if, um, if we have Greek formulas and how we can figure out this God, if this were true, the early apostles that we see in the Jewish foundation and the disciples of the faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11 about, by the way, they're all characters of all <laughs> individuals of the, the heroes of the faith, as we call it. Every one of them came from the Jewish Testament, every single one of them. And those people could have saved themselves a lot of martyrs' blood and a lot of suffering, and a lot of sweat, and a lot of tears if they had only known, supposedly, how to turn Jesus' teachings and goals into a simple formula called Jesus only came to forgive us? Really? Is that the only reason he showed up? What, what does 1 John 3, 8 says? It says he came in order to do away with the works of the devil, of Satan. Where are those works? They're still inside of us, and they have to be dealt with. Put on your seatbelts, folks. We are going to identify and slay some Gentile sacred cows keeping us away from a relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hey, hope you have many, many Simple Truth moments. See you next week. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on KPraise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.